welcome to Hazel and Katniss and Harry and Star, a young adult literature podcast, film and television adaptations, all that jazz. I'm Joe. What is happening? I'm Prenna. We haven't recorded in like a week. I'm off my game. <laughs> and our show is created on the traditional lands of the Haudenosaunee, the Huron-Wendat, and the Anishinaabe on lands connected to the Toronto Purchase Treaty 13 of 1805. And on the Tecumloops Te Shwetmik territory within the unceded traditional lands of Shwetmik Ulu. And today's text, Dance on My Grave by Aidan Chambers, is set in Southend on Sea, um, which is outside London in the UK. So we don't really mm-hmm. have a territorial acknowledgement. We don't really talk about territoriality at all in this text. But it was no. nice to get out of North America for a bit, Joe, I have to say. Yeah, and of course, we're also talking about the film adaptation, which goes by a different name. So we're talking about Summer of 85, and that is set in France. And that also doesn't have a territorial acknowledgement, because we still do not talk about place. (laughs) It's very true. There is one line on Dance on My Grave that makes me laugh, which is when they pretend to be quote unquote foreign to Mm. not get murdered by that biker gang um and when they find out that they're not in fact foreign and one of the characters says you're not even a little bit foreign like you're not even welsh that that made me laugh (laughs) yeah uh we were joking about that offline there's a lot to unpack with the way people (laughs) do and don't treat being quote-unquote conquered and colonialism but that is a whole other subject brenna joe made me promise we wouldn't do this today so instead (laughs) Hey, you want to talk about Aiden Chambers, which means we have a lot to talk about, lady. Oh, we do. So so this is the second book in Aiden Chambers' dance sequence, of which The Tollbridge was also one, which we read for book club last year. But I think this mm-hmm. is the only one that's been adapted to film. Um, yes. And that film adaptation is really recent. So the book's from 1982, but uh, Summer of 85 just came out in 2020. But it's a period piece, obviously. Summer of yep. 85. <laughs> How would we have known? <laughs> I think Dance on My Grave itself is set sometime in the late 70s, and it's actually the short title. The full title is, Joe, are you ready? Mm-hmm. Dance on My Grave, A Life and Death in Four Parts, 117 Bits, Six Running Reports, and Two Press Clippings with a Few Jokes, A Puzzle or Three, Some Footnotes, and a Fiasco Now and Then to Help the Story Along. Hmm. Yeah, that's pretty accurate. Yeah, it's pretty it's pretty on the nose. Um, so this tells us the story of a boy named Henry Robinson. Um, he goes by the name Hal, and he has been caught by the police dancing on a grave, uh, hence the title. Mm-hmm. And what we come to learn as the novel progresses is that uh, this is the grave of Barry Gorman, who was Hal's boyfriend, lover. We never really say, do we? No, and we have this difficult uh, sort of love story between the two of them that is punctuated by uh, the aforementioned biker gang situation, Mm -hmm. as well as uh, a girl from Norway who sweeps Barry off his feet briefly. Their work together in the record store that Barry's late father owns, and Barry is sort of coping with sort of grief and loss around his father's death as well. Mm -hmm. And we've got all kinds of characters who are more or less able to cope with Hal's queerness, which he's, I think, actually kind of, you could never describe him as out of the closet by any stretch Mm -hmm. of the imagination, but he is surprisingly open with certain people about his sexuality in the way he talks to, like, for example, his English teacher. So, you know, we've got these adult figures who are in greater or lesser states of denial, Mm-hmm. Hal's English teacher probably understands him the best and is in the process of trying to convince him to stay on at school. So Hal has just turned 16 and in the UK at this time, this would be a, a time of deciding whether to leave school or to go on for university prep courses in a particular subject area. And so he's interested in literature, but everyone around him says there's no reason to study <laughs> literature. There's no job, so no it's jobs. not worth your time. But also... Well, it's tricky, right? Because Hal clearly doesn't have a sense of who he is. No. And this book, in a way, is one of the most quintessential coming-of-age books that we have tackled on this show, right? It's a young boy at the crux of having to make a decision. And, you know, along comes this very important figure who helps him figure himself out. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it's 
sad, obviously tragic, because he does lose Barry and he sort of collapses. He has like a massive breakdown as mm-hmm. a result of Barry's death and his inability to really cope with that loss and also to fulfill this promise. He has promised Barry that whichever one of them dies first, the other one will go and dance on their grave. Which Mm -hmm. turns out is a lot more complicated to orchestrate than you might think. (laughs) Yeah, because Barry is Jewish and it's not as simple as like going to the cemetery and finding the headstone and just having a little jig. It's like, oh, okay. You realize that not only is Hal not super intuitive about certain things, like he didn't realize that Barry was falling out of love with him. But also, he didn't seem to acknowledge that Barry was Jewish and the kind of obstacles that that might present. Hal is a really interesting character. He's sort of in many ways, he comes from a family of quintessential like little Englanders, as I describe them. It's like this mentality where like Britain is sort of like it and like the contexts in which you live are the contexts in which you will remain, right? Mm -hmm. Like all Hal's dad wants him to do is leave school and get a job and start helping to pay their bills, right? Like that's... That's all he is offered as a choice, and that's all the family sort of sees as possible. Yeah. Even his mother, who's like, oh, yeah, I used to love poetry. I used to write poetry. Don't study literature, right? Mm -hmm. Like, there's no view beyond, and there's certainly no assumption or sense that he should go out to discover himself in any way. Like, I don't mean that university is the only path for that, but they're not like go travel and find yourself, go no. like, go Mm-mm. pursue an apprenticeship. No, it's like, get a job in this dead end tourist trap town that we live yes. in oh. and help us pay the bills. Yeah, which is funny, right? Because it has the opposite effect where it's turned Hal into a bit of a dreamer. Yes, that's exactly what I was going to say. So this is the tension and contrast is he's growing up in this little family that really doesn't, you know, they're, they're kind of stifling, right? You really get this stifling vibe from them. His dad... Mm-hmm can't stand that he sleeps in even though he's at work all day and doesn't know about it anyway and how has just finished his exams so he's Mm -hmm. on summer vacation and there's this sort of constant oppression surveillance watching because even though Hal's mom kind of gets him yep she can't cross Hal's father and we do get a little glimmer towards the end of the book of a sense that Hal's father is not necessarily a gentleman Right. When when Hal reacts in anger to Barry and looks in the mirror and sees himself, he realizes that the face he's seeing is his father's face. Right. And so, yeah, Hal's a dreamer and books provide an escape, but so, too, does writing. And so we have this kind of, um, as you said, Joe, quintessential coming of age story, but quintessential like story of the author as a young man kind of Mm -hmm. book. Right. Where he's exploring not just his own life, but how you put your life down on paper. And I think stylistically, one of the most interesting things that's going on in the text is that sort of metatextual thing where like he'll describe an event in a chapter and then in the next chapter, he'll be like, I liked the way I used like such and such word to describe how I felt that day. Like, and he's always kind of not just examining the events of the text, but examining his own reaction to and like memory of them. And of course, all this is happening because it's really a frame narrative He's trying to write out what happened for a social worker who is going to make his case to a judge in this court hearing he has to go to because he's been charged with defiling a gravesite. Mm -hmm. And also, shh, gosh, you are steamrolling. (laughs) Like, I need to get a word in here, too. No, you don't. No, mm -mm, no. (laughs) Okay, I'm shutting up now. You go ahead. It's mostly just coming back to the stylistic piece because I saw the film first and then obviously just read the book. And... They're very, very similar, but one of the big differences that the book makes is that metatextual element, because it's much harder to do in a film without either breaking the fourth wall. You know, we do have a voiceover, but we'll talk about that. One of the things that really fascinated me about the book is when how we'll describe something and then we'll get a new chapter or like a new number. And he'll go back and say, oh, so that's not really what I did, but I wrote it out (laughs) in such a way so that you think I'm a really innocent boy, but secretly I was courting Barry and I knew exactly what I was doing when I said this thing or when I put my hand on his leg. And you're just like, oh, this kid is a bit of an unreliable narrator, even as it's very clear that he doesn't have himself figured out. Like he is in the process of writing out who he is. But also, he's not telling us the full story. And it's interesting because he sometimes tries to make himself look 
perhaps uh, more innocent and mm-hmm, sometimes mm-hmm. tries to make himself look more mature and more knowing. But yes. I wouldn't ever say he's actually trying to make himself look good. You know what I mean? It's very truthful. It's very truthful. It might not always be exactly what happened, but it's <laughs> yeah. always honest. Do you know what I mean? There we go. Yeah. Honest is a better word. Yeah. I um, I really appreciate that. You know, we talked about this when we read The Toll Bridge, but it's not an easy read to read Mm -hmm. an Eden Chambers book. It is a rewarding read. Yeah. They're they're dense and you have to take your time with them. But we get these characters who are flawed and I don't know, almost porous. Like you can see all these different aspects of Hal and that's what makes it a really, I think personally, (laughs) Mm -hmm. compelling coming of age story because coming of age is hard, right? Like figuring yourself out is hard. And Aiden Chambers does a good job of giving us these characters who are wrestling with themselves in really obvious ways on the page that Mm -hmm. I find really compelling. Well, yeah. And they're wrestling with themselves in really obvious ways because it is relatable and it's accessible. Like the language is difficult. The stylistic approach that Chambers is adopting is complicated, But the actual character arc and trajectory is very reminiscent of like a lot of things that we associate with childhood. Like he's not breaking the mold in that regard, but the way he does it is so much more complicated and nuanced than what we usually see. And that's where the reward comes in for me. Mm. But there's something so unique about the way that Chambers writes these characters. Because when I finished the book... I had to sit with it because you always have to have a sit with Chambers. Mm-hmm. And I just thought to myself, this is a book where so little happens. And yet I'm really grappling with the implications and all of like the meatiness of it. Right. But mm-hmm. when you stop to think about it, this is just the story of two boys who had a love affair over a summer. One of them dies in an accident and the other one has to write a report about why he danced on his grave. That's all that yeah. happens. That's literally all that happens. Yeah. To say it that way is glib and Mm -hmm. it doesn't at all acknowledge what the book is actually doing. Like it's so much more complicated than that. Well, this brings me to a question that I have for you, Joe, because another sort of on the surface way of looking at this book would be to say, oh, great, another queer tragedy, right? Mm -hmm. Like, oh, great, another queer love story that ends in disaster. Um, Oh, great, another dead queer character. Mm -hmm. And all of those things are true. And Aiden Chambers actually lays those out in basically the first page of the book. Like, Mm -hmm. Barry Gorman is a boy I fell in love with, and he's going to die. And this is the story about what happened. And yet, I didn't feel like this book was tragic, And I also was really moved by the tenderness of Hal's feelings towards Barry. I was almost going to say the tenderness of the relationship. Mm -hmm. But one thing that makes all of this more complicated is that Hal is very much more in love with Barry than Barry is with Hal. And their dynamic is very much one of sort of a slightly older boy who is enjoying the infatuation of a younger boy but is eventually gonna get kind of bored of it Mm -hmm. oh yeah barry is a big old jerk he's clearly (laughs) one of those people who enjoys being the center of attention he loves having an adoring kind of apprentice or somebody that will worship him and then at a certain point he will just decide oh i'm not interested in you anymore because you bore me or i found someone new and part of this is Hal needs to grow up and realize that the thing that he has with Barry is not the thing that Barry has with him. Like, Mm -hmm. he is living a fantasy, and that's why it seems so perfect, and it's why he falls so hard when Barry dies, because he thinks he has lost the greatest love of his life, and it's not until he's hanging out with this girl, and she says, you know, uh, it sounds like you've made up this person mm-hmm. like is that who barry actually was and the answer is of course no Mm-mm. what did you think about i guess did you feel the book was tragic i guess that's my right. question for you um i think it's tragic for how and i don't mm-hmm. think it's tragic for the readers and we talked about this offline part of the way that chambers negates that and sort of avoids well i don't think he would have even known 
that this is a trope or something that we struggle with because of course he's writing this so much earlier than a lot of the mm. queer like the dead queer texts that we end up getting in the 90s and the early 2000s but i think by saying this character will die he's at least preparing us and also the story doesn't stop there right like no. this isn't the story about their romance this is the story about how hal handles it yeah, and it, it's very much not Barry's story. Barry's a no. character in Hal's story, which is also mm -hmm. a really important, uh, I don't know, counterpoint is kind of the word that is coming to my brain, but does yeah. it feel right? I think it works. And I think, too, part of it, maybe part of why it doesn't feel entirely tragic to me is because we also get a bit of Hal's recovery at the mm -hmm. end of the book. Like, we, we don't leave Hal in that broken state, which is... You know, the film makes a slightly different choice, I think. Right. Yes. But in the book, we leave Hal, well, uh, picking up another dude, mm -hmm. <laughs> right? Like, so we leave Hal at, at, at this point in his life where he has he has recognized that that Barry was important to him and has helped to shape him. Right. But that maybe it wasn't the relationship he thought it was. And so yeah. he sort of turns to to someone else and he has this whole sort of, because he is so introspective, he has this whole thing about, like, when he's hitting on Spike at the end of the book, it's kind of like, well, why Why was it Barry then and not Spike then? Like, what was mm -hmm. it about Barry that attracted me? And, you know, he's he's figuring himself out and he is moving on. And I think the fact that we get that at the end and just a little sort of breath of humor with that mm -hmm. he has this reference, he refers to his, uh, his sexual escapades as a present from South end. And he, <laughs> he says that it was like one of the last lines in the book is that he gives spike a present from South end. I think that we have confidence that whatever happens next, like Hal is not like done <laughs> growing. Mm -hmm. He hasn't like figured himself out. Yeah. We do have a kind of hopeful trajectory for him at the end that I think is really helpful to diffuse some of that tragedy. The other thing is that we never see the death, right? And so right. it's not like milked for its kind of emotional tenor. Like he doesn't mm -hmm. like weep over his fallen corpse or anything, although there is some weeping and there is a corpse. Yeah. <laughs> um, what did you think of that scene, Joe? We should probably set it up for readers, but oh for listeners, but yeah, it's like um, this weird moment of broad comedy. <laughs> it's it like is. very odd. I'll confess, and maybe this is telling on myself as a bit of a romantic or as a person who enjoys queer love stories because I don't always feel like I get enough of them. Mm. But I enjoy the first half of this book a lot more than I enjoy yeah. the back half. And I think that's by design, but it doesn't change the way I feel. Totally. But yeah, so after Barry has died, Hal recruits Carrie, this uh, exchange au pair girl, and he ends up dressing in drag so that he can go to the morgue because he needs to see Barry's body one last time. And in a kind of emotional fit, when he realizes, oh, that really is my dead lover, and I can't process this, he throws himself onto the corpse inadvertently revealing himself to be a boy and there's this whole yeah it's it's like a broad comedy almost like a farce where mm -hmm. he then has to escape the morgue attendant he ends up nearly ruining his friendship with carrie but then he ends up having to use her so he can find out where barry has been buried and i get everything that chambers is doing but i find that there's like one too many of these. Like I would have preferred that we don't have two attempted dancing on the grave sequences mm. or that we don't have the morgue sequence. Mm. It, just because it feels a little too drawn out and maybe too broad. Like I don't, I don't love the drag thing. In mm -hmm. the book, it goes on for way too long. It's like, and here, put on these tights. And here, put on this wig. No, I don't want to put on the wig. No, I don't want to put on the tights. And you're just mm -hmm. like, oh, just move it along. Move it along. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I agree. I think, you know, it's not part of his larger breakdown. It's part of his larger social performance of breakdown. Like, it's something mm -hmm. that the courts can point to and be like, like, this kid is effed up and we got to do something, right? Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, and likewise, the two dance sequences are necessary because he screws up the first one so badly that that's why the police are lying in wait for the mm -hmm. second one and he gets caught so like narratively they it all make sense, sense yeah. but i agree and i particularly find 
I think, I think what Chambers is doing with the morgue scene is playing into, there is something about British culture of Mm -hmm. the 70s and 80s that like cross-dressing is like the height of humor, right? Like Mm -hmm. every single sitcom has some kind of cross-dressing scene or like you've got Monty Python where like, they just don't cast any women. They just always just put mm-hmm. men in drag, right? Yeah. Um, and that's a real sort of trope. And I I don't know what he's doing with it, but I think he is to some extent tapping into that um, and sort of subverting it or, or queering it to a certain extent. But I don't uh-huh. find it particularly successful. No. And I think that it's also a way to give Carrie more to do. Mm-hmm. But, but I don't I, need that. I don't need it. I don't, I don't need <laughs> Carrie actually particularly much as a character. Well, I think she serves the function to cause the initial rift so that we can yeah. get to the death. But after that, yeah, it feels like, oh, well, I introduced this character. I guess I should do something a bit more with her. Yeah. I agree with you that I think it is probably playing on a little bit of that British sensibility. I think it's also Chambers trying to do something with masculinity and performative Mm. masculinity where Hal's dad is very much like, why are you crying? Like, this was your friend. Get over it. Get back to work or go back to school or something. And of course, we get this throwaway reference to an uncle who was Mm. a crossdresser, which in code basically means that the uncle was queer Mm -hmm. and they don't get to talk about him or ever see him and i think that's offering both commentary on who hal has to contend with in terms of like oh do i grow up to be like my uncle and possibly risk ostracizing or being abandoned by my family and am i okay with that but there's really fascinating stuff there that doesn't get unpacked and i i would have preferred that we actually address it because it feels like a dangling plot thread like it's a little breadcrumb and -hmm. chambers doesn't want to go there it's interesting right because there are moments when i'm reading this book that i cannot believe it was written in 1982 like it it speaks so frankly and tenderly about this love affair between these two boys yes and without ever saying gay (laughs) we should know yeah it's true without ever saying gay but also i mean 1980 I don't know it's 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 a fascinating moment in queer literary history because particularly in Britain it's like just pre-AIDS crisis right mm-hmm. and so there isn't kind of a, a doom that comes to color a lot of these stories that come in the late 80s and 90s for like obvious reasons mm-hmm. there's a sort of hopefulness and a sweetness and there's moments when I just like cannot believe that this text was published when it was. And then there Mm -hmm. are other moments, like when we just get this tiny bit about Uncle Jack and nothing more, or when when Hal almost tells his dad why this friend he's only known for six weeks has... Why that death has devastated him. He almost tells him and doesn't. That you're like, oh, right, 1982. Mm -hmm. You know? And those are the moments that I just feel like... It's not often I wish for a book to get revisited by its author, but I'm almost like, like, what would Chambers do with these characters today? I'm, I'm genuinely curious. And it's mm-hmm. part of why, well, I think we'll transition to talking about the adaptation now, but it's part of why, you know, I love a period piece. I love the 80s, the music, the costumes, like everything visually in Summer of 85 is really lovely. Mm-hmm. And also part of me wishes that the adaptation of this text had taken these characters into a contemporary realm. Yeah, because I'm just curious about, I'm just curious about their story, and I'm curious about how time plays against them, and particularly plays against Hal. Right. Hmm. Yeah, I don't know if this would have been as successful, because I think, you know, one of the characters that we haven't talked about very much is Barry's mother, and her response to his death is she blames Hal. And yes. it's, it's a really interesting dynamic, right? Because she is super overprotective, but also too trusting of Barry. So she says, you know, after his father's death, he really fell apart. But then Hal comes along and she feels like he has brought Barry back to himself. And she thanks Barry for that, but then also blames him when Hal dies. And it feels like she was okay with their queer love affair mm-hmm. until... I was going to say, because... She knows, right? Mm-hmm. Like, there oh, are she these knows. comments throughout the text where she knows without it ever being, uh, uh, again, overtly discussed, as, as mm-hmm. Joe points out, no one ever says gay. No. 
she knows, but it's still a convenient place to lay blame, right? Yes. And that's one of the things that Hal reflects on in his journaling is like, he knows that she knew. She had to have known. Mm-hmm. He knows how important their relationship was to each other. She knows how much he cared about Barry. But when push comes to shove and she stands up in court, it's a lot easier to blame Hal for, mm-hmm. you know, for for turning her son strange mm-hmm. than it is to recognize the love affair for what it was. And ultimately, he he can't ever overcome that with her. And it's sad because he has a hard time opening up to his own mother. And there's, an, there's a sense at which he finds mothering in Barry's mother that he doesn't have access to at home. Yeah, and so yeah. he's also losing that, right? He's also losing this other adult relationship that could have been really important to him mm-hmm. in the long run. Yeah. Yeah. And let's maybe think about moving over to the film here. But when I see the film, and I've seen it twice now, I actually think that one of the more captivating characters in the film is David, aka the Barry character. Mm. I think his mother is incredibly fascinating. And I She's almost sexualized in the film, right? Like just almost, just on the edge of, it's an interesting tone and choice that she's making in that role. Mm -hmm. And more so than in the book, I actually feel like she is really under David's sway. Like she Mm -hmm. is almost as infatuated with her own son and his life as the Alexi Howell character is. Mm -hmm. And I think Part of that is that it's easier to convey that in the film because you can do things with like glances and the way that the camera vocalizes the way people see other characters and so on. But yeah, she she's very uncomfortably sexual. And it, mm-hmm. it's not too far an extrapolation from the book because we do get that sense, particularly in the early scenes, but it just feels heightened in the film. Agreed, 100%. So, yeah, let's talk about this film. So Summer of 85 is a French-Belgian film by Francois Ozon. He's a very famous director. He often makes sexualized thrillers. So this, Mm. I don't want to say it's a departure for him because in some ways, visually, stylistically, even narratively, it's on par, but he doesn't often work in a YA realm. So he uh, ends up writing and directing this, which is why it gets transposed into France, and it is a French film as opposed to English. And yeah, the character names are different. So we have uh, Félix Lefebvre as Alexis, that is the Howl character. Can I just say, Joe? Mm -hmm. Can I just say? Yes. Félix Lefebvre is the person who should be playing Archie on Riverdale. He looks exactly like Archie Andrews is supposed mm. to look to me personally <laughs> anyway go ahead go on <laughs> i i honestly think that he is the biggest find like mm. and it's hard for me to reconcile with this because i mean he's 20 when he makes this film so i'm okay to say i find him exceedingly cute and adorable <laughs> but also he really captures that cusp of innocence yeah. right like he is sexual and he has like a late teenager to early adult body, because we see a lot of it. Like we we see him nude relatively frequently. (laughs) And it's that transition period between like boys and men that actually makes me very uncomfortable as a older queer man. Mm. But I think for the casting of this film and who this character is, it's so spot on. He's perfect. His facial expressions in particular um, really capture that kind of... I mean, as you said earlier, the film can't be metatextual in the same way that the book can be, but there mm-hmm. are moments where his facial expressions really capture this this line between innocence and knowing mm-hmm. that is so important to understanding this character on the page that I found really effective on the screen. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 
And then as uh, David, the Barry character, we have Benjamin Voisin, and he's good in a charismatic, aloof way, but I don't know. I, I find David is a bit more of a cipher than mm-hmm. Barry is in the book. Yeah, I agree. I agree completely. Part of it is that he is such a cad in those cad-like scenes. And yeah. he turns on Alex so completely, far more than Barry does in the book, um, mm-hmm. and far more overtly, that it's it's hard to it's hard to be affectionate towards him in the same way. Even though he's extremely charming to look at. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And they, the boys have really good chemistry, so you mm-hmm. absolutely want them to fall in love. And it really hurts when David ends up hurting Alexi. Like, he's, you're right, he is such a cad after he ends up sleeping with Kate, who is the Carrie character. And she is played by Philippine Velge. And this is fascinating because uh, Philippine Velge is very much a French actress. Like, I just saw her in a fantastic HBO show called uh, Station Eleven, the adaptation of the Canadian novel. Mm. And... She's good in the film, but one of my favorite things is that this character is supposed to be British, who is spending the summer in France. She's doing a bad French accent. It is so atrocious. I love it. I'm just like, oh, that is spot on. Because, Mm -hmm. like, it is painful. It sounds like when I try to speak French, like, you know what you're saying, but you're not saying it quite right. Yes. And it is gorgeous. (laughs) She nails it. She nails it so well. And it's... um. Yeah, it's very compelling and also like nails on a chalkboard. <laughs> mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, and and really like those are the three main characters. We have mm-hmm. Valeria Bruni Tedeschi as David's mother, as we talked about. I don't really feel like anybody else makes a significant impact in this, except maybe Alex's mom, who is played by Isabel Nanti. And it feels like they get a few more scenes or maybe just that their scenes are super impactful particularly in the aftermath of david's death and we get these very understanding glimpses between mother and son particularly around the uncle jackie stuff Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. i do think um lefebvre who is the stand-in for ozzy the teacher who Mm -hmm. um who the two boys share in common i think he is well done as well as a character in the film although i I, I agree with you that the central story does not really involve the adults. I felt like Alex's mom is so old. She is. And very I say old. this as someone yeah. who's a pretty old mom. <laughs> yeah, oh, you're so ancient. I was surprised by that choice because I, um, yeah, I, I don't know why I was surprised by that choice, but I was struck by it every time she was on the screen. Like they, mm-hmm. they make her look her age, which I thought was interesting because it, I don't know, that it, it implies a whole bunch of subtext, right? What so strongly contrasts David's mother as well, right? Who yes. is it, She almost comes off as a bit more of a cougar just because of the discrepancy between the two moms. She's a very hot 80s mom. She's a very yes. hot 80s mom. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, before we sort of go into some of the changes or what we think of the film, I'm curious about Lefebvre because this mm-hmm. teacher... I didn't pick up on it in the film as much the first time, but then as I was reading the book and then seeing the film again, I actually got more queer coding this time Mm. around. Mm -hmm. Do you feel like this teacher is as invested in these two boys? Because we eventually learn that he has encouraged David slash Barry to also stay in school. And Mm -hmm. on some surface level, you could say, oh, well, he's just interested in people continuing their education. But it also seems like, oh, he cherry picks particular students. And I couldn't shake it. In the book, it's really clear he doesn't encourage people to stick with their education. and He Mm -hmm. does cherry pick particular students, right? Because at least part of what is motivating Hal in the book to stay on at school is the fact that this teacher is taking an interest in him and this teacher Mm -hmm. takes an interest in nobody, right? Right. And it's It's also something that makes Barry extra attractive. The idea that Ozzy has seen something powerful and valuable in Barry in the same way he has seen something powerful and valuable in Mm. Hal is something, it's one of the first kind of connection points that they have, right? Right, right. So I think so. The film makes it explicit, right? Because in the film... Alex actually asks him, did David seduce you? Or did David try to seduce you? And it's like, oh, 
okay. Like it's really, it's really over. I don't think, I don't think Ozzy has a sexual interest in either boy in the book, but I mm-hmm. do think that he is one of the few adults that understands the relationship between the two boys, which right. for me, for the time period, for the text, that codes him as as queer, or at mm-hmm. least I mean, it has the potential to code him as queer, right? In the book. He has an understanding that other people don't seem to have. Yes, exactly. And the film just makes that quite overt. And I'm mm-hmm. I mean, I guess the, the the narrative choice in the film is that there is really nothing special about Alex for David, except that he was present, right? And that David has this kind of sexual magnetism with everyone he crosses mm-hmm. paths with, which I actually, I didn't love as a choice. Okay. Only because, like, Barry sleeps around. Like, Barry gets up to stuff. And that's fine. Mm-hmm. But I, I don't think there's nothing in his relationship with Hal. It's not the same as the way Hal feels for Barry, for sure. Whereas in the film, it's almost like anything special about Alex kind of gets erased after Hmm. David's death, which it makes me sad because I really love the love scenes between them and the tenderness between them. Mm -hmm. And I I don't know why that needs to be completely obliterated, but it sounds like you didn't feel the same way no i don't and i think in part it's because in the book we get some additional insight into how Hal has approached these male relationships like he very much starts the book by saying i was looking for a best friend like he was Mm -hmm. looking for someone who was going to have magic beans Mm -hmm. he's constantly on the hunt for this fairy tale-esque friend of his and friend Mm -hmm. is very much like read into it folks he's looking for someone to get romantic and physical with Mm -hmm. and he tries that with a bunch of different boys but it doesn't work the same way that it works with barry and we lose that for the film so this really ends up becoming about a first time love affair where Mm. it's a naive boy who is in way over his head but doesn't realize it with a more experienced boy so still 16 still 18 and then carrie is 21 Mm-hmm. And you just very much get the sense that Alexi, he doesn't really know what he's doing. So, no, that's true. So it didn't bother me as much. I think it reflects more poorly on the David character because he is yeah. so obviously using Alexi. Like, it's almost fun in games for him. Mm-hmm. And I think that's also why we feel like he's more of a cad. Mm-hmm. That makes sense. Okay, so... Let's talk a little bit about this film because I'm interested how you feel about the relocation to France and if you feel like it still captures the kind of touristy, beachy Mm. vibe. Because I was amazed at how well this works for me. And I think it doesn't hurt that Ozan knows how to shoot this. Like, this looks stunning. It's warm. It's inviting. It feels like a summer love affair. And then things get a little bit dirty grimy like the the film stock itself actually has a bit of a distressed look to it like the Mm. colors are mildly saturated so that it feels like oh yeah this is a period piece right i'm remembering that it's not just oh the clothes look like 80s garbage yeah i think to me the most important thing in this setting is the dead endedness of it Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and as someone who you know i've mentioned on the show before i grew up in a tourist town and there's a very particular vibe of like a town where all the business is in service of outsiders right Mm -hmm. like very famous joke in my town is that we have several stores that sell anne of green gables merchandise for some reason but Mm -hmm. cannot maintain a hardware store over a winter (laughs) (laughs) so it's this kind of there's a very particular vibe of a community that is exclusively catering to outsiders Mm -hmm. yeah i love the transition from a record store in the book to this kind of universal uh hardware store slash fishing supply shop in the film yeah, with a ton of just tourist tatty crap, crap. that's obviously keeping them sur- like keeping them afloat. And yep. and so to me, as long as the town is set somewhere like that, that's the vibe that I really think is, I don't know, sort of central to the spirit of the book, right? It's because mm-hmm. even if Hal were to get a job in town, there are no good jobs in town. There are mm-hmm. only service jobs in yes. town. And so 
that continues into the film. And I think that's really important because, yeah, as I say, there's just this particular ethos of a community. It's hard to have a community identity when everything is constantly sort of externally facing. Mm-hmm. And and I think that the film does that well. And yeah, I agree with you. It's just really beautiful to watch those opening scenes when Alex comes up to who I guess is the Spike character. Yes. I don't know what his name is in the film. And they're on the beach and it's like the beginning of summer and class has just let out and it's like, let's celebrate. And you really Mm -hmm. just kind of want to go there, especially right now. It's February in Canada. Like you really (laughs) want to go there. Yeah, I think for me, and I ironically enough feel the same way about the pacing, like it is a very, very faithful adaptation, like it's Mm -hmm. almost beat for beat in its uh, choices. And I prefer the front half of the film because Mm -hmm. it's sunny and lovely and sexy. But my favorite scene is a new scene that doesn't I don't think makes an appearance in the book. It's when the two boys go dancing at a club. Yes. And there's this moment where they're just, they're joyously dancing and singing along. They're in the middle of this large crowd. And then David puts headphones on. And it's a much slower song that he effectively makes Alexi listen to Mm -hmm. as he continues dancing. And it's, it's so visually symbolic of the fact that they are on different paths and how Mm -hmm. David is actually controlling the relationship so that he's getting what he wants out of it. But it's also beautiful and romantic. And Mm -hmm. because it's the early stages of the relationship, you just think like, oh, they're having this private moment that's just between the two of them. It's a nice um, tether that runs through the film too, because that song on headphones is what he will play when he's dancing on the grave Mm -hmm. and so you have this sort of carry through from the beginning to end of the relationship that that demonstrates that david is in charge even after his death right like yes but i also love that scene because of the way they use strobe lights Mm -hmm. there's sort of this sense of um I don't know. I was going to say it's very cinematic. Yeah, it's a movie. Um, mm-hmm. But there's like this, the way those sort of flashing and the boys are sort of center in this frame. It's just really lovely. Like it's, I don't know how to describe it in like smart people words, Joe, but it's really effective <laughs> for me. <laughs> yeah, actually, because you raised it, let's talk about the way the film sort of finishes, because obviously everything is building to this big dance sequence. And when I read the book, even having already seen the film, I had difficulty almost visualizing what this looked like. And Mm. I think the film, it has to show it. And there's a danger that this will be silly or stupid or that it just won't work. And I think in large part, this is credit to Felix Lefebvre. Mm -hmm. His dance is so frenetic and all-consuming it starts off really awkward and i cringe and then i Mm -hmm. just realize oh this is tragic Mm -hmm. yeah it's interesting right because basically the last breaths of the film are are the kind of dance and the being carted away by the police Mm -hmm. and the dance is absolutely like frenetic is the word for it and it it follows on his first scene at the grave where he absolutely has like a physical breakdown. Like he looks like he is having a seizure on the grave. Mm -hmm. And so in a way it's like this movement from a total lack of control to like a a much more Mm self-possessed moment. uh, Even if it's a little awkward to watch at the beginning. One of the things that I found effective about it is, the music carries through from that first dance scene, but it's also the dancing that carries through from that first mm-hmm. dance scene, right? Like mm-hmm. a lot of those moves look like club moves, yeah. um, which makes sense because what other context does Alex have for dancing? He has no other context. But yeah, I think my investment in Alex's character makes me want more of the recovery than we get in the film, right? Yeah, it's very brief. Yeah, yeah. And so instead we're sort of left with that as our final image. But I mean visually it's quite stunning like he's mm-hmm. throw, almost dancing in shadow at this grave site and then these two police officers like haul him away and he is still dancing right mm-hmm. yeah so what did you think of the finale or the ending of the film because you hinted that in the book we get this suggestion that he's going to pursue something with spike and 
the film hasn't really made use of a spike character like we have a guy who he gets the boat from and that's how we get the meet cute with david at the beginning but instead what we do is we revisit the drunk boy mm-hmm. that he and uh david rescue earlier in the film and this ends up sort of coming back around to suggest that maybe this will be the new boy in Alexi's life, but also maybe not because it's very unclear if this new guy is even queer or interested. Yeah. It was interesting. I was mixed. I think I feel mixed about it. I was happy okay. to see the drunk again. <laughs> I was happy to know he was okay. <laughs> well, it feels like a bit of payoff, right? Because yeah. it's more of an episodic thing that happens in the book, even though I mm-hmm. think there's a stronger implication that Barry may have molested him, potentially. Mm-hmm. Like, that's mm-hmm. why he was out until four. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh, yeah. He goes back to do so- something with yeah. the drunk man, whatever that was. And it's interesting too, right? Because it's another example in the book of how our unreliable narrator, who is very moved, at first he's annoyed and frustrated that Barry wants to help this guy, but then Mm -hmm. he's quite moved by it. And the fact that like Barry can see that he is a young boy when Hal was really just assuming he was like much older than he was because of the state he was in. So it's nice to have that character return, but I don't know. I think I'm... It's a selfish way to watch a movie (laughs) to really like want more growth from the character you care about most. But I did want more growth from the character I care about most. Um, And especially because David is so awful in the film that I really (laughs) wanted. I wanted, I guess I wanted a more unambiguously positive ending for Alex, which, Mm. you know, as I say, like, I don't think that's a fair or reasonable request right. for the characters, but it is how I felt at the end <laughs> of the film. Well, I mean, this is one of the tricky things about art, right? Mm-hmm. It doesn't always give us what we want, but that doesn't mean that we don't still want it. Yep. <laughs> to be honest, I actually preferred the ambiguity. There's a hopefulness in the book that feels earned because we've been through it like we've really gotten insight into how and what he's been struggling with so it feels like oh finally he's turning a page he's rounding a corner he's going to be okay and look here's maybe a future romance on the side Mm -hmm. the film even though it's really doing a beat by beat adaptation it feels like it's happening a little bit quicker so I don't know that I would find it as believable that he meets Mm. this new boy and he's just like ready to start a love affair like it's clearly time has passed because he's doing community service on the beach as part of his rehabilitation but i don't know i i find that if you want to read it as hopeful you can see it as this is the beginning of the next relationship or if you're a little bit more cynical you can read it as he's okay to sort of take initiative now right because he's the one who says well i've got a boat why don't we go out and he makes it happen as opposed to letting things happen to him which is what he's been doing for the whole film sorry can i can i just say on what level does he own that boat oh he does not (laughs) no that is not his boat no and like david's mom is mad at (laughs) him she would absolutely be like i'm having you arrested for theft yeah she would absolutely i was like what is happening why is he going back out in that boat this is not safe (laughs) he's learned nothing (laughs) he's learned nothing um and i guess you know that is part of it as you said we get more time with Hal. we also have more time with hal's wrestling of other aspects of his life the film is about a romance Mm -hmm. that ends in heartbreak right the book is about a coming of age that involves a romance, but also involves wrestling with like, am I going to stay in school? What do I want to be when I grow mm-hmm. up? Like all of those pieces. Yeah. And so the book requires a resolution to some of those plot lines. Mm-hmm. And I actually find it really sort of honest and believable that the resolution is, I'm going to do school for another year because I mm-hmm. still don't know what I want to do, which yeah. I kind of love. <laughs> As people who both completed <laughs> master's degrees and I started my PhD and you finished yours, it's like... Sometimes I'm just buying time. Yeah, I just do it school till somebody thinks of something else for me to do, right? And mm-hmm. so I, I loved that. Like, I think the payoff in the book is really honest. It's not like all of a sudden, right. you know, I know what I want to be when I grow up and this is my career path. He's like, I have found a way to buy myself a little more time. Mm-hmm. Well, it also feels strangely autobiographical, right? Uh, 
It feels like Chambers has invested so much of himself in this character that it could be him saying, yeah, you know, this is how I became a writer too, to the point where I once again completely forgot that Chambers is not queer (laughs) and was like, wait, what? Hat, what? No, because he has such good insight into this that I'm frankly stunned that he has a wife and children. (laughs) I know. I think that every time, because so many of his books have these queer central characters who Mm -hmm. are going through this like deeply emotional moment. I can't tell you how much I want Aiden Chambers to write a memoir. He has never published a memoir. Mm. I want his autobiography so badly. He did publish a book just last year, Joe, that I think would be really good. It's called The Age Between Personal Reflections on Youth Fiction. Um, It's Mm. apparently all about sort of like his approach to writing for young people. Oh, wow. And I think that that would be a good read, but I really want his autobiography. I want to know how many of these like vignette moments come from his life because they feel so authentic and they're also so specific, right? Like I think back Mm -hmm. to the, the toll bridge and like, that's a very specific Did setting. Did you work at a, a, a summer work in the Toll Bridge? Were you in know. a tourist town? Did you have a love affair with another boy? Which, you know what? I should actually bite my tongue because I said, oh, he's not queer. It's like, well. We don't know that. He may, he may have done stuff when he was younger. Mm-hmm. Like, these stories could very well be drawn from truth. They feel true. They do. That line between, as we talked about off the top, that line between honesty and truth, like Mm -hmm. these books are so honest about what it feels like to be this age. And that's, I just Mm -hmm. find that one of the most powerful aspects. I also was reading this and I was like, Joe, I read this book when I was 13. Like, (laughs) yeah, not that I'm like, but like, what was, what emotional resonance has actually stuck? I don't know. I can't remember. I just know these books are really important to me. But when Mm -hmm. I was like 13, it's interesting feels young it proves to me that you were a far more mature and accomplished reader than i was because this is very much the time period when i was reading christopher bike which is you know kind of trashy supernatural uh ya stuff uh, on par with what we're going to be reading in a couple of weeks but <laughs> actually that's not being very fair to christopher bike but no it's really not joe <laughs> read christopher bike 10 times in 10 but all this to say i mean I would be surprised if you grasped everything about this, because mm-hmm. even I recognize that this is YA for YA, but a lot of the times this feels so mature that I would almost mm-hmm. be surprised if people were able to grasp everything if they were reading it as teenagers. Like this feels, 100%. it feels appropriate for adults who are nostalgic for their teen years. Yeah, totally. And I, I'm, Yeah. I don't have anything to say except that way more than the toll bridge. The toll bridge, I very much remember responding to. This Mm -hmm. I don't, but I know that I read it. And you should see my copy. It's like, plus, oh, by the way, my cover art, far tamer than your cover art. (laughs) Oh, yeah. Did you see that? I did. I'm not used to seeing YA with what looks to be penetrative acts on the cover. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I was like, oh, Joe. No, mine is the two of them. They're in silhouette. It's their backs, and it's the two of them looking out over the sea, and one mm. has an arm around the other. That's that's what's on my cover. Much More appropriate. Tamer. More appropriate. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, should we play some YA bingo with this? Oh, I think so. Yes, please. Bingo. Not a good bingo. All right. Well, I'm interested to see how we're going to fare with this. Yeah, me too. So I'm going to say coincidental classes because of the poetry that he is reading at school at the beginning. And Mm. also because of the constant thread of like things that Ozzy taught to both of them that Mm -hmm. comes up a lot in the book. Right. I'm going to give them a perfect date. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. In the film for the dance club. In the book, I don't know that we get a lot of description of their time together, but it just feels lovely (laughs) when we do, Mm. you know? Yeah. I think we can call it borrowed time because we know that one of them is not surviving the book. Uh Uh-huh. And as a result, a dead body. A dead body. Yeah. And we actually have dead body and dead family. Yeah, it's true. I don't know. I guess we have a road trip in the film. Yeah. Uh Uh-huh. Yeah. They took a lot of bike trips together. They do in the book too, but you just kind of hear about them after the fact. You don't get to like go along on the road trips, I guess, except for the one to London. Yeah, it's interesting. I wonder if that's part of the reason why you feel like the film is so much more about a relationship, because we actually get to see so much more of the relationship. Yeah, that's true. That is true. Um, What do you have? 
so I have good friendships mm, and yes. I also have hollow friendships and romances. I think they kind of go hand in hand in this book. Hal's in a good friendship and Barry's in a hollow one. <laughs> exactly, right? Like, And I think it's just that change in perspective that it really informs the text. But the reality is, is that this is a hollow romance, but it starts off as a really good friendship. Yeah. Yeah, and then, um, I mean, I, I guess I put queer secondary character, but really. You could almost put straight secondary character for, for Carrie Kate. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Like in a queer film, she's the she's the token straight. Yeah, indeed. <laughs> but uh, that's that's it. That's all I've got. Yeah, me too. I do have a question for you, Joe. Mm-hmm. So, in literally all of the reviews, write ups, even the Wikipedia page for this film, mm-hmm. I see people using the phrase like loosely based on partly based on no it's in the film it literally says loosely based on aiden chambers's book but it's like a beat for beat remake (laughs) i think it's because we changed the location and the names and the names which is also i mean i recognize that the names in the film are slightly more french but i mean i don't understand barry to david well it's especially resonant if you have read the book because david is the father barry is grieving and not over the death of so yeah anyway i was just curious <laughs> if there was like a reason from like a you know film perspective why they're no. saying that when it's very clearly one of the more faithful adaptations yes. we've ever read mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. like i think the new scenes are basically just the nightclub yeah, uh, I mean, we we kind of get away a little bit from the biker gang to just it's part of their evening at this amusement park where they run into the spike equivalent that that Alexi has borrowed the boat from. And that's what instigates the fight. But apart from that, yeah, it's really a minor flushing out of a couple of scenes. And apart from that, nearly identical. Very strange. Very strange. <laughs> just thought <laughs> I'd ask. Okay, Joe. So next week is Band Book Club. There we go. Mm-hmm. Our shortest offering, but one of our most, I think, fun and playful offerings. We're going to be reading This One Summer by Mariko Tamaki and Jillian Tamaki. And Joe, do they still have time to get their thoughts in for that one? You have two days. Okay. So get your thoughts in, folks. It's not a long read. You could probably read it today and send your thoughts in tomorrow. <laughs> Um, and we wanted to let people know that the next book we're looking at, also because it's an older one, so sometimes a little bit harder to find, but we'll be reading The Pigman by Paul Zindel. Mm-hmm. And then our next full-length episode is... <laughs> Woof, Joe, this book. Just... <laughs> so we're reading Nerve and watching the film adaptation, and it mm-hmm. is a YA thriller, and I don't know how I feel about the film yet because I haven't watched it. Um, the book is making some choices, so I'm looking forward to talking about them with you, Joe. Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, you know what? We we got to change it up, right? Like, it's part of the show's format. We go from, like, super serious coming-of-age queer <laughs> film to utter trash YA thriller. <laughs> well, part of it is just the quality of the prose, Joe, because I've actually been reading the two books simultaneously. Oh, gosh. Whiplash. Moving from Aiden Chambers, like very measured and considered and thoughtful, like deeply literary fiction. Mm -hmm, To to... I wrote this book in a weekend and then didn't edit it. Yes. (laughs) It's been interesting. Um, So on that note, folks, you know you've got to be looking forward to it. You you love it when we have complaints. Mm -hmm. Um, If you want to get in touch with us about this or anything else on the show, you can find us at HKHSPod on the Twitters or on the hashtag HKHSPod. If you want to talk to me, I'm at Brenna C. Gray. That's Gray with an A. Joe, where do they find you? I am at B. Stole My Remote, and that's the letter B. And for anything more long form, you can find this at HKHSPod at gmail.com. So, Joe, we've got some comics. We've got some really bad writing. We've mm-hmm. got, you know, you know, it's we're cha- as you say, we're changing it up. We're mi- yeah. <laughs> mixing it up. Yeah. Uh, so until next time, folks, I will see you on the page. And I will see you on the screen.
This is Dance on My Grave, 1982 young adult novel by Aiden Chambers. I think it's the second in what he calls the yes. dance sequence, which um, mm-hmm. the Toll Bridge was also, no. Yes. Toll Booth, Toll Bridge. Oh. Hang on. 